Well, good morning again. Welcome to Missio. Uh, my name is Bernie Elliott. I am one of the uh, elders on staff here at Missio. I'm grateful to be able to uh, open God's Word with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now as we continue through our series on the Psalms called Psalms of the Great King, and turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. There were some new ones put there this week. You can find our text on page 453, Psalm chapter 16. This is God's word. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you now in the name of Jesus. And we are confronted by the fact that the natural person cannot understand the things that you have written because they are foolishness to the natural person. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would illuminate your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand. Show us the beauty and trustworthiness of your Son, Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you consider yourself a confident person? If so, on what basis, like, what's the reason for your confidence? Maybe you answer no to that question, but you know confident people in your life. What do you perceive as the ground or the root or the foundation of their confidence? For some people, it's a, it's a money-based confidence. 
right? They, they are set financially, and so they're not worried about what may come. They can handle kind of the, the disasters of life, and, and besides that, they have money beyond, and, and they can secure whatever their, their pleasures desire. For some, it's a, it's a knowledge-based confidence, right? Yeah, you have a, or people we know have this mastery of a, a broad array of, of areas, English and history and economics and politics. For still others, some of it's a, a track record confidence. Just whatever we put our hand to seems to turn to gold. We have success in, in whatever we do. And for still others, it's an achievement in your chosen field or in, in your field of study right now. You just excel and you have this confidence or you know people with this confidence about them. For still others, it's simply based on uh, their appearance, their looks. They can hold their head high. Uh, or perhaps it's some uh, physical ability, some physical accomplishment that makes them self-assured. Consider with me for just a moment the ramifications of a stock market crash and the loss of your job. Imagine with me a, a disease that robs you of your mind. Envision with me a moment uh, your family and friends turning on you. Picture, if you will, an unfortunate accident in, in which your physical frame was significantly impaired and your appearance was marred. What would be the ramifications for your confidence or for the confidence of those who, who place their, uh, that have their ground of their assurance in those things? It seems to me that there's a temptation for many of us, if not most of us, to place our confidence in things that do not deserve hope. Like the, the three little pigs and the story of the three pigs and the big bad wolf, um, we, we seem to place our hope in huts of straws and sticks. We feel certainty in things that aren't guaranteed, things that are quickly blown down by the wolves that just simply roam around in the situations of life. In this psalm, David expresses absolute confidence in, in the midst of what are less than ideal circumstances, in the midst of chaos and crisis, uh, it seems like he could possibly even be facing death. That's the situation he's facing. And, and yet, he has this absolute certainty and confidence. And, and my prayer is that the God of Scripture will use this passage to reorient our lives to one worthy of our confidence and our hope. So let's get into it. You'll notice that uh, David in this psalm is crying out for God's protection. At the very beginning, he is asking God to observe him carefully so as to save him. Look at verse 1 with me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, notice that in this brief petition, there's also an expression of trust. He's saying, God, I need help and I 
oh, by the way, God, I believe that your address, the address for your house, is the place where I get help, right? All other ground is sinking sand, God, so I'm coming to you. All other houses are like the houses of straw and stick, uh, and, and so they're worthless. Prolong my moments and my days. God, preserve me. So this is the petition we have, but in verse two, the rest of it plays out as an expression of his trust. We just get this short little petition, and then we have verses upon verses here of an expression of trust by this man who's possibly staring down the jaws of death. Look at verse two with me. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, that is, I say to Yahweh, God's proper name, I say to I am, you are my Lord, my master, my leader. I have no good apart from you. He's saying, my good is not apart from you. I don't have you and then all these other wonderful things. He's saying, I have you. As one author put it, everything without God, listen to that, everything without God, is pathetically inferior to God without everything. That's what David's saying. I have no good apart from you. Everything without God is pathetically inferior to God without everything. I have no good apart from you. What a statement of trust. And David builds on this in verse three. Look at it with me. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. Part of the good of of God's care, part of his provision is the provision of a community, the people of God. And David has experienced the love and the grace of God through the love, the care, the support the encouragement of brothers and sisters in the covenant community. They've encouraged him, strengthened him, challenged him. And as a result, they are a blessing, a joy, a source of delight for him. Pastor James Boyce, now with the Lord, said, those who love the Lord will love the company of those who love him. Have you allowed yourself to be loved and cared for by God's people. But David goes on, there's further trust he wants to, to express and he can't keep it in. Uh, by, and he does so by voicing the foolishness of those who have other sources of trust, those who look to other alternatives, those that are putting their hope and their confidence in other things that vie for their trust. Look at verse four with me. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their sorrows won't just be the sorrows they have now. Their sorrows will be the sorrows they have now plus. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, David sees people in in crisis situation and he sees them turning from Yahweh, the creator God, to other gods in the hope that Boy, maybe they can bandage up the financial situation. Maybe the health situation can be resolved. 
And David says, nope, that's a cost too great. I'm not willing to pay that because those who exchange the delights and worships of the, of the Lord for false gods do so at the cost of their own spiritual and physical well-being. I'm not willing to pay that cost. Their choice would not bring satisfaction, but only disappointment and greater sorrows. So David's having none of it. So in rejecting that, he's expressing his trust that the Lord alone is his good. So David's in trouble, and he's seeking safety, um, not in himself, not in his wealth, not in his power, not in the people behind him, not in his persona, all of which are pretty significant, but he's seeking that safety in the Lord alone. And so what we see, what we learn immediately from this psalm is that the fitting response to any turmoil in our life is to trust the Lord. The fitting response to to turmoil is to turn immediately to the Lord. We should look to faith, by faith, to God's hand for provision in the disarray of, of just our ordinary existence. Do you do that, friend? In times of hurt, in times of frustration, in times of pain, in times of worry, in times of of suffering, in times of abandonment, do you place your hope in your money, in your ingenuity to get you out of the situation, in your doctor? In your politician or your political affiliation? Or do you, as David did, express complete trust in God? Trust the Lord. Trusting the Lord, we, we know that's a good thing, right? It's kind of the, the Sunday school answer. The, ask your five-year-old, what should you do? Trust the Lord. Of course they know. It sounds like the spiritually mature decision. But when we're faced with chaos, when we're faced with the loss of our job, when we're faced with disease, when we're faced with crisis, when we're faced with fill in the blank, what is it for you? Our instant reaction is most often not to call on God, to say, God, in you I take refuge. That's not our instant reaction. Instead, our reaction is often marked by panic coupled with pathetic decisions. Trust the Lord. But we would do well to ask, since David has expressed his confidence in the Lord, on what basis did David so resolutely, intently trust the Lord? On what basis can you and I, in the midst of chaos, trust the Lord? David explains his trust in the Lord on the basis of his delight in God. He could respond to the mayhem of life with confidence and trust because of the joy God brought him. And he mentions at least three demonstrations of God's care that that are the basis of his trust. Look at verses five and six with me. 
He said, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So we got this talk of portion, cup, lines, inheritance, and uh, that's kind of distant from most of us. What's going on here? What David is doing in most of this verse, verses five and six, is he is alluding to the apportionment of the land of Canaan when Joshua went in and conquered the land and they divided up the land between the 12 tribes. Every tribe, that is, except for the tribe of Levi, every tribe got a portion of land that was theirs, that was home. Every tribe got a portion of the land flowing with milk and honey, except for the priestly tribe. What's the deal? Why didn't the priests get land? Were they bad? This was God's punishment? Numbers 18 tells us why. It says, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance. There's that word inheritance that David's using. In the land. Neither shall you have any portion. There's that word again. Among them. I. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. David is saying, God's my inheritance. God's my gift. God's my delight. Now, we have this other metaphor of a cup. It's the symbol of of one's destiny. If you recall Jesus, when he's praying in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the Lord to remove this cup from him, right? That cup is a, there it was judgment. It's a symbol of one's destiny, and it could have been judgment or blessing. And David's obviously talking about his cup here as one of tremendous blessing and refreshment and delight, So what David is saying is that his joy is not solely rooted in God's good gifts to him. His joy is in God himself. God has certainly blessed him with incredible things, great wealth. He's the king. But God himself is the great gift. God himself is his inheritance. So even if all else were stripped away, his family, his friends, his health, his throne, his finances, his security, his job, his home, if all the social order were stripped away, David could rejoice because he would still have his great prize, his great portion, his great inheritance, God himself. If I own a 100-acre orchard, 100-acre apple orchard, and A.J. Watling has the gall to come on my property and pluck an apple off of one of my trees without asking, you know, I might be kind of miffed that he took one of my apples without asking. But it's not going to be devastating to me. It's one apple on one tree out of a hundred acre orchard. Okay, take the apple, AJ. Right? 
if, if I have a net worth of a million dollars and I know I had a $20 bill in my pocket yesterday, but I can't find it, you know, I, I might just kick myself and be a little bit upset. But guess what? I've got a million dollar net worth. I'm not going to panic. I don't have a hundred acre orchard or a million dollar net worth, but for the record. The point is, David values God so highly, he can say in the midst of chaos, maybe in the face of death, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant, beautiful places. Why can he say that when everything is falling apart, unraveling, going badly? Because he still has God himself. So as David faces trouble, he can trust the Lord knowing that God will not remove himself from him. And everything else that is threatened, everything else that could be taken away, pales in comparison to his great possession, God. But there's more. Look at verse 7 with me. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night Also, my heart instructs me. So in the midst of the changing circumstances of life, in the midst of tumultuous circumstances, God's guidance was a source of stability. David wasn't just going this path alone, trying to figure it out, trying to make it up as he goes along. In the midst of gut-wrenching decisions, God was pointing the way. God was guiding him by his word. God's word assured him of his path. And as he meditated on that word at night, it brought him great comfort. You see, the fitting response to our chaos, to our turmoil, to our trouble, is to trust the Lord because of the satisfaction God provides. Friend, can you say... Can you say with resolve, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me in the face of the ugliness of life? Can you say, my inheritance is beautiful when the doctor looks at you and says, your wife has cancer? Can you say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places when your boss says, clean out your desk? Can you say, the Lord is my portion? He is my inheritance when life is falling apart. Probably not if your confidence is in your money, in, in your social program, in your relationship with your kids or your spouse. But if you know God as your inheritance, you are not sad when the circumstances of life walk away with an apple from your orchard or $20 from your pocket. David not only talks about his past and and present joys in God's care as the ground of his trust, but he goes further to talk about the certainty of future joy. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. It says, Therefore my heart is glad, 
and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is, uh, is an imagery for the grave, the cemetery, the pit, where your body is laid after it dies, and then it begins to decay and deteriorate, and so see corruption, as the text says. And David was expressing confidence that the present trial he was in, whatever it was, we we're not sure what it was, but that it wouldn't end in his demise. And even if it did, even if it did entail death, that God would overcome the grave. The grave wasn't the last word. As one commentator put it, David was convinced God did not establish a covenant with him and provide for him and guide him through his life only to abandon him at the moment of his greatest need. Death. You see, we serve a God who we believe the scriptures teach is immutable, unchangeable. So, of course, he would continue to bless David beyond death. He had blessed him throughout his life. But here's the catch with our psalm David died, David was buried. If we knew where it was, we could go to David's grave today and find his rotting bones. So was this some empty, vain hope that acted somewhat like a narcotic that they, they, so David could escape the hard reality of life? Is that what this, this expression of trust was? One Old Testament scholar clarifies, he said, when David wrote this psalm, he's referring to the entirety of Psalm 16, he was going beyond his own personal experience. He did not, for example, always set the Lord before him. Nor was David always unshaken. Both David and his contemporaries would recognize this psalm as an unrealized ideal. So what does that mean? What are we left to believe? Well, we do know the promises were realized. The promises were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In Acts 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. It should pop up on the screen. If not, in Acts 2, Peter is preaching to a crowd at the Feast of Pentecost. And in verse 29, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Peter says, guys, ladies, David wasn't actually writing about himself here, first and foremost, primarily. No, David was writing about the Messiah, whom he didn't know his name would be, Jesus, who was put to death, crucified on the cross, laid in the tomb, but raised to life on the third day. Folks, here's the amazing thing. That promise that, that David clings to in the face of death, that, that God, his creator, wouldn't leave him to rot in Sheol, in the grave. It wasn't a delusional belief or a false hope. David would realize that in Christ. At some point, David would be raised because Jesus was not conquered by the grave and he was raised. And let me tell you, let me assure you, the identical hope awaits those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The identical hope that he will not abandon us to Sheol, to the grave, or let us see corruption. Romans chapter 8, Paul holds out hope to the Roman church with these words. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, Christ fulfilled the law, the demands of the law, by his uniquely sinless life. And he died to suffer the penalty for, those, for, for all of us, for lawbreakers. He died on the cross to, to suffer the penalty for lawbreakers, even though he fulfilled the law perfectly. The resurrection. What's the point of the resurrection? The resurrection was God's certification that what Jesus said he was going to accomplish on the, on the cross was true and accepted. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death. And because of that, we are forgiven from the guilt of our sin. We are freed from the power of our sin. And we are raised from the penalty of our sin, which is death. You see, if you are in Christ, Jesus' destiny is yours. His fate is ours if our hope and our confidence lies not in our abilities, not in our 
our knowledge, not in our efforts, not in our wisdom, not in our strength, not in our goodness, but in Christ Jesus alone. Where's your trust, friend? In what does your confidence rest? In what is it grounded? Almost about 70 years ago, May of 1953, early in the morning, a Sherpa named Tenzing Norgay got up in the morning along with his fellow traveler, Edmund Hillary. And they began what would be a seven-hour climb, the last part of a climb to the top of the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. Two men struggled upward, but they struggled together because they were tethered by a rope. They were tied, literally tied to each other. As they neared the top towards the end of this seven-hour climb where they finally reached the summit, they discovered some soft snow. And Sir Hillary recalled this. Immediately, I realized we were on dangerous ground. Suddenly, with a dull breaking noise, an area of crust all around me, about six feet in diameter, broke off. So here they are on the side of the mountain, and what they are standing on literally goes out from under them. Kind of like Wiley Coyote cartoon. Right? They only survived because of Tenzing Norgay. Because when he heard the sound, he drove his axes into the side of the mountain. Sir Hillary plummeted and would have certainly fallen, almost certainly fallen to his death. But he was tethered to Tenzing. He wasn't going anywhere. His fall was stopped by that rope. He was enabled to climb back up and finish the climb to be the first people to ever reach the summit of Mount Everest. If, if Sir Edmund Hillary, as great as his climbing skills were, as superior and vast as his knowledge of climbing was, if he was untethered to Tenzing Norgay, he would have died a horrible death. But because he was tethered, roped to, linked to Norgay, Hillary's life was spared and he's now world famous. Friend, those tethered to Christ, united to him by faith, will not succumb to death, but will live because he lives. Even though everything in our life says we are going to fail, we will die. If we are tethered to Christ by faith, we live because he lives. We will be raised because he was raised. You see, the fitting response to the chaos in our lives, to the turmoil, to the trouble, is trust in the Lord because the, the satisfaction God's provi God provides does not end with the grave. It goes beyond. Death does not and will not have the final word. 
Those who have trusted in Christ will be raised bodily to new life in the last day. That's why David can say back in Psalm 16, verse 11, look at it with me. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think about what he's saying. He's not just speaking of joy, a little bit of joy, a lot of joy, fullness of joy. And, and, and there aren't just pleasures for a time or, or, or for many seasons, there are pleasures for ever. Right? We know all the pleasures that this world affords. A piece of cheesecake, a steak done just, just right, gathering around with family, holiday celebrations, a walk in the woods perhaps for some of you inexplicably. The squashing of the pit panthers at the dome. Right? These things are wonderful. But they're incomplete. And they're fleeting pleasures. They they leave us unsatisfied and ultimately hungry again. Right? We have to play pit again in February. But in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Peter calls this an inheritance that is imperishable. It doesn't perish. Undefiled. There's not even the littlest bit that's just off. Unfading. Like, The joy, the intensity of joy, just, it's always there. It doesn't diminish. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are in Christ. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, give us just a sliver of a picture of the joy and pleasure for those whose confidence is in the Lord. Listen to these words. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all people, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
That's the future joy, the future certainty for those who are in Christ. In similar language, John in Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Think about that. For the former things have passed away. In light of the joys we've just heard, we've just read, in light of the pleasures that await those of us who are in Christ, all the trials of this life suddenly lose their teeth. See, the fitting response to trouble is to trust the Lord because the satisfaction God provides does not die with the grave. The the Lord is worthy of, of our trust. The Lord is worthy of your trust because his blessings bring joy forever. Some of you have never placed your hope in Christ. This world is is like your shopping mall. You, You are wandering aimlessly, trying on different sources of confidence and hope in the hope that something will fit, that something will fill your fears and sorrows and remove them. But this one doesn't fit, so you go on to the next. Friend, Place your hope in Jesus. The Lord is worthy of your confidence in the midst of chaos because his blessings go beyond the grave. Tether your life to Jesus by faith. He has conquered sin and the grave. He has dealt with guilt and its penalty. For those of us who know Christ, Remember and recite this promise. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forever. Meditate on that in the midst of of your marital difficulties. Fix your mind on that in the midst of financial worries. Cling to that as the doctor sits across from you and delivers terrifying news. Recite that as you read the latest news headline and anxiety grips you. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Friend, the Lord is worthy of your trust because his blessings bring joy forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess that you alone are good. 
We confess that you alone are worthy of our, tro- our, our trust and our hope. And so, in light of that declaration, I ask right now that you would destroy all the other sources of confidence in our life that leave us without confidence and without hope. Let us see their foolishness. Let us grieve the glory we have robbed from you by trusting in them. And now, by your Spirit, through this psalm, make your glory clear to us. Manifest your perfections in our Savior, Christ Jesus, our risen King. May we build our hope on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Join us to him by faith. May you cause us to know you and rejoice in you because in you there is fullness of joy. In you there are pleasures forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.